This podcast was made possible by the generosity of community members. Thanks to individuals giving at the builder level. A pretty plot, well chosen to build upon. Charlotte Osborne, Laura Park, and the Paff family. Thanks also to individuals giving at the audience member level. And you yourself have of your audience been most free and bounteous. Stephanie Searles and the Sorensen Colleen family. This podcast was made possible with support from Sunrise Bank. To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. Protect your financial safety with Sunrise Bank, your neighborhood bank. This podcast was made possible with support from Urban Growler Brewing. Does it not show vilely in me to desire small beer? Yeah, go for the growler. Stop by Urban Growler Brewing, your local brewery and taproom. We'll teach you to drink deep ere you depart. This podcast was produced and made possible thanks to the generosity of MN Podcasting. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Have you got a story worth telling? A library of industry knowledge to share with your field? MN Podcasting can provide you with a platform and turn all the world into your audience. Upstart Crow Youth Shakespeare Troupe presents Lend Me Your Earbuds, a pandemic Shakespeare podcast series. Episode 1, Hamlet, a true crime podcast. Friends to this ground and liegemen to the Dane. Greetings, this is Resistance Radio coming to you live from an undisclosed little patch of ground here in occupied Denmark. I am your host, the Great Dane. As you undoubtedly have noticed by now, the new <clears throat> fascist policy of a quote, temporary, unquote, muzzling of free speech in the name of establishing order shows no sign of letting up. So, as tyrants rise, free speech goes underground. Since under the Fortinbras regime, all non-state-sponsored radio <coughs> propaganda is censored, we broadcast from off the grid and with aliases. But as we like to say, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space. Welcome to our attempt to uncover the truth in our truth-suppressed society. This is Hamlet, a true crime podcast. In this episode, we will take a deep dive into the deeds and misdeeds that took place at Elsinore, the royal castle of Denmark, during the last days of Denmark as we knew it. Here are the facts. A brief review of our turbulent times. The royal coroner of Denmark reported nine Danish deaths, four within the royal family, within approximately four months. This was according to the official statement released after what can only be described as the bloodbath that occurred the day Fortinbras of Norway claimed the Danish throne and shortly established his authoritarian regime. 
The late King Hamlet's line of succession ended that day with the death of his brother, Claudius, then the king, and his nephew, King Hamlet's son, Prince Hamlet. As Fortinbras of Norway entered the leadership void and assumed the throne, a new epic began and little effort was expended to clarify the remarkable events that marked King Claudius's short and turbulent reign and the many untimely deaths that punctuated its end. Official travel logs, transcripts of public speeches, burial records, conversations, and even court-sanctioned performances painted a murky picture, at best, of court intrigue, jealousy, and revenge. And none of it checks out with Fortinbras' party line. Fortinbras naturally had a simple answer to the alarming death toll. Wanting to boost his image as an indomitable conquering force, Fortinbras claimed that he met great resistance in his takeover at Elsinore, and in the ensuing battle, he single-handedly killed the nine Danes in hand-to-hand -hand combat, conveniently not explaining how the deaths were spread over a four-month period. Naturally, the victor's story has been enshrined in history, but now, for the first time, we can tell another, truer story. We have recently discovered a veritable treasure trove of, well, words, 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 to quote the uncommonly loquacious Prince Hamlet. We have gained unprecedented access to Hamlet's private, for lack of a better word, audio diary. It is replete with what Hamlet describes his attempts to unpack his heart with words and confessions of what he calls his thinking too precisely on the event. Thanks to the intrusive security system put in place by Polonius, formerly a high-ranking advisor to the Danish king and one of our nine deceased, we have access to all of Hamlet's soliloquizing. The meddling Polonius had long touted a to thine own self be true policy within the castle, subtly promoting a widespread culture of external processing tending towards massive oversharing and constant noise pollution in the halls of Elsinore. In wiretapping the entire castle of Elsinore and linking the files to the cloud, Polonius' measures inadvertently caught essential details and potential motives behind some of the hitherto completely mysterious deaths. These files come to be known as the Polonius Tapes. It is Resistance Radio's great fortune to have access to a troupe of traveling actors or players who were originally hired to perform at Elsinore and have subsequently been detained at the border for questioning on their way back to their homes. These actors will give voice to Prince Hamlet's, for lack of a better word, ramblings to help our audience attempt to enter the mind of the late enigmatic Dane and piece together the mysterious events surrounding his death and those near to him. Was he an avenger, a murderer, a victim, or all three? We will seek to answer this question by entering the mind of this death-obsessed Dane. As we try to untangle the events of this remarkable crime scene, we ask you to suspend your judgment. After all, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We begin our dive into the Polonius tapes with the self-description of Hamlet's mental and emotional condition. Oh, that this too too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. 
fie on it, I fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. It is not, nor it cannot come to good, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Spoiler alert, he's not very successful at holding his tongue. And from the evidence of this text, the only life Hamlet appears to be at risk of taking is his own. Because the Polonius tapes only captured texts spoken in private and unheard by anyone but the speaker, the next part of our crime story takes a turn towards the paranormal. The scant evidence made public about Hamlet after his death attempted to paint a picture of Hamlet as a weak-minded prince who went insane with grief after the death of his father. Horatio, a confidant and bosom friend of Hamlet's, repeatedly claimed during much redacted testimony that immediately following Hamlet's vow to hold his tongue, Horatio confronted Prince Hamlet with the shocking news that he and several guards the night before had encountered Prince Hamlet's father, the late King Hamlet, walking the ramparts of the castle. Allegedly, Hamlet agreed to join Horatio and the others the following night, when the ghost reappeared to the prince, and once he had his son alone, told him the story of how Claudius, the king's brother, had murdered the king while he was sleeping. He then compels his son to avenge his death by killing Hamlet's uncle. The final swearing on Hamlet's part to perform this avenging regicide was supposedly witnessed by Horatio. This supernatural testimony was previously dismissed as hearsay until the Polonius tapes were released. Next, we find Hamlet alone, musing about his own impotency in avenging his father's death compared to the forceful commitment an actor demonstrates in playing a part. And for the first time, we are given clues to the supposed pact between ghost father and son, shedding light on the motives of the frustrated prince. Now I'm alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I! Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice in his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this, huh? Zunes, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful, bloody body villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave, that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words, and fall a-cursing like a very drab a scullion. Fie upon it, foe, about my brain. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play 
have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he but blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps, out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he's very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. All have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. It appears that Hamlet's epiphany about guilty people confessing their crimes after witnessing a dramatized scene that resembles their crime accounts for the otherwise inexplicable court receipts for the hiring of a troupe of traveling players. Incidentally, this troupe is the same troupe dramatizing Hamlet's words for us. Again, we find Hamlet alone, this time asking the big questions of existence as he further delays the enacting of his promise to his father. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the wits and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment with disregard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Hamlet has yet to commit to any course of action, but if we were to suspect him of deadly intent, it seems that the most likely victim again would have to be himself. But can we even accept Hamlet and Horatio's word about the late King Hamlet's death at the hands of Claudius? Up to this point, a person could be forgiven for dismissing the charges against Claudius as unprovable, since there would be no witnesses remaining to testify. But once again, the Polonius tapes give us another bombshell revelation. It seems Prince Hamlet was not the only one given to private confessions. For the first time, we have access to the text of King Claudius's prayer confessing the murder of his brother. Oh, my offense is rank, it smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. Oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen. May one be pardoned and retain the offense? 
in the corrupted currents of this world, offenses gilded hand may shove by justice. With this next speech, we find Hamlet about to stab the preoccupied Claudius until he realizes that Claudius' preoccupation is prayer and that killing someone in the middle of praying to the Christian mind is the surest way to send said person straight to heaven. Hamlet realizes that this kind of dubious thinking should probably be, as they say, scanned or reconsidered. The last thing he wants is for the object of his father's revenge to get his passport stamped for heaven. So we have yet another unbelievable wrinkle in our story when Hamlet passes up the ideal opportunity to avenge his father by killing his unarmed uncle and instead decides to wait for another opportunity to kill Claudius when Claudius is engaging in his typical damnable behavior and thus makes certain that Uncle Claudius has no chance of making it to heaven. Now might I do it, Pat. Now he is praying, and now I'll do it. And so he goes to heaven, and so am I revenged. That would be scanned. A villain kills my father, and for that, I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven? No. Take him when he is drunk asleep, or in his rage, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed, at gambling, swearing, or about some act, that has no relish of salvation in it. Then trip him, that his heels may kick at heaven, and that his soul may be as damned and black as hell, whereto it goes. The last time we hear from Hamlet's soul as he is typically contemplative and parsing. At one point, he has the novel idea to divide one of his thoughts into four parts or quarters, ostensibly requiring more scope for his thinking than a single thought allows. But despite his ponderous bearing at the outset, the conclusion of his thoughts presages a murderous conclusion. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man, if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast, no more. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Indeed, of the many shocking revelations the Polonius tapes have brought to light, it is Horatio's account of Prince Hamlet's final words that take on perhaps the most eerie significance. At the time of the post-mortem, Horatio had been quite overcome with emotion, but nevertheless remained insistent that he share the final words of Hamlet. Friends to this ground and liegemen to the Dane. After hearing Hamlet's thus far unknown perspective, we will share with you the purported final words of Hamlet. Stripped from the official court record, these words were, up to this point, bootlegged and reported to the world by Horatio through unofficial portals of communication. But let it be, Horatio, I am dead, thou livest. Report me in my cause aright to the unsatisfied. What a wounded name, thinks standing thus unknown, shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain, to tell my story. Up to this point, these words were a quaint but noisy enigma, confounding to anyone who cared to hear. 
which wasn't many people thanks to the generally curiosity-crushing culture of the Fortinbras regime, and inscrutable to the rest of the listening world. But not for the first time, Resistance Radio is about to blow your mind, or as Hamlet used to say, distract your globe. I am thrilled to introduce our guest, Horatio. Horatio has been living in hiding since his first attempts to tell his friend's story under the nose of the Fortinbras regime. Speaking out for the first time on air since the postmortem, we bring you our star witness, Horatio, uncensored. Welcome to the show, Horatio. Thanks for having me. Nine deaths, four months, two transitions of power, one publicly forcible, and an unapologetic suppression of any attempt to uncover the truth or motive behind the carnage. What can you tell us? Right. Where to start? I mean, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars, start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end, like the quills upon the fretful porcupine. I bet you could a tale unfold. Let's just start with the deaths. What can you tell us? I trust you cover the murder of King Hamlet. Yes, thanks. We did cover that. But we're totally in the dark about Polonius' death, and the deaths of his children, for that matter, Ophelia and Laertes. Yes, I should be able to clear up some of that. Polonius, the ever-meddling eavesdropper, had situated himself in a closet to overhear Prince Hamlet's private conversation with his mother, Gertrude. Well, behind the heiress, hearing something stir, Hamlet whips out his rapier and cries, A rat! A rat! And, in this brainish apprehension, kills the unseen old man. What about his children? Of that I shall have also cause to speak. Yes, this is quite private, but I believe essential to the story. Hamlet and Ophelia were in love. I am amazed and know not what to say. Yes, Polonius and Laertes did their best to conceal this fact as they felt the whole affair to be trifling. Forward, not permanent. Sweet, not lasting. The perfume and suppliance of a minute, no more. Not to mention that they deemed it an impossible match, Hamlet being of noble birth and Ophelia being, in their words, an unvalued person. Essentially for Hamlet, his will was not his own. Poor obedient Ophelia obeyed her father and broke off her relationship with Hamlet. But this trauma, coupled with the mysterious death of her father and the absence of her brother, drove her into madness. Then she tragically took her own life by drowning. That is awful. And it also sheds some potential light on the delicate frame of mind that seemed to inform the only speech of Ophelia's overheard on the Polonius tapes. Oh, woe is me, to have seen what I have seen, see what I see. Sadly, that sounds entirely likely. Meanwhile, Claudius sent Hamlet to England with his two friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Ostensibly for Hamlet's safety, unbeknownst to the two friends, however, they were carrying secret orders from Claudius to the King of England to have Prince Hamlet killed as soon as they arrived in England. Hamlet, however, secretly intercepted the order during the trip and changed the order to read that it was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern who were to be killed. Shortly after this, the ship was boarded by pirates who took Hamlet captive only to return to Denmark. Zoons, if this were played upon a stage now, I could condemn it as an improbable fiction. Pirates? Yes, most notorious pirates. To his great consternation, Claudius had just been informed that Hamlet was on his way back to Denmark, 
Now here is where the plot really begins to coagulate. Laertes, who was studying in French at the time, rushed home to discover the truth of his father's death, only to be confronted by the subsequent loss of his sister, Ophelia. Claudius, sensing his own danger and an opportunity to pit two potential enemies against each other, stoked Laertes' vengeance towards Hamlet. Claudius and Laertes conceived of a scheme to poison Hamlet during a fencing match. That must be where the legend of Fortinbras' single combat prowess was born. Exactly. The reality was that Fortinbras arrived only once Laertes had poisoned Hamlet with his sword. Hamlet had disarmed and then, in turn, poisoned Laertes' back. Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, had inadvertently been poisoned by the cup Claudius had set aside for Hamlet. Hamlet had turned the remnants of the poisoned cup on Claudius, and, after reconciling, Laertes and Hamlet had ceased to breathe. And that was the scene of death that greeted Fortinbras. So much for the indomitable Fortinbras single-handedly fighting his way through the Danish castle, but your information does seem to explain Fortinbras' paranoia of being poisoned. Well, this new information has positively recast the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Thank you, Horatio, for telling your story. It feels like the least I could do, lest more mischance on plot and errors happen. And it's not my story. It's all our stories now. But let it be, Horatio. I am dead. Thou livest. Report me and my cause aright to the unsatisfied. What a wounded name, things standing thus unknown, shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Friends to this ground and liegemen to the Dane, thank you for listening and caring about the truth. From one great Dane to another, this has been your Resistance Radio, and remember, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. This has been an Upstart Crow Youth Shakespeare Troupe production. Visit our website, upstartcrow.org, where you can learn more about our troop and find a link to donate. The actors were Zach Bowman as the Great Dane, Naomi Kempke as Hamlet and Ophelia, Kai Sackrider also as Hamlet, Graham Whitney also as Hamlet, Adam Paff as King Claudius, Garrett Seppinen as Hamlet, and Liam Sakharov as Horatio. Our sound tech was Soren Sackreiter. This podcast was mixed and produced by Marshall Saunders of MN Podcasting. Lend Me Your Earbuds is adapted and directed by Sam Bardwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>